Welcome to The Human Perspective with internationally recognized badass disability activist Judy Human. Today, Judy is in conversation with Shane and Hannah Burkaw, also known as Squirmy and Grubs on their popular YouTube channel. They're an absolutely fabulous and hilarious couple who share their lives and their relationship, as Shane is disabled and Hannah is non-disabled. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, get some snacks ready, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet our guest today. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. I'm very excited today for a number of reasons. Um, interviewing uh, Shane and Hannah Burkhoff is really a privilege. And I say it's a privilege for me uh, because the two people that I work with, uh, Becca and Stevie, uh, both of them have known of your work, Becca for many years and Stevie for the last six or seven months. And you know, I have to say as an older person who is uh, still learning about social media, playing a role in social media. I've only uh, started to get to know both of you over the last four or five months. But then as we've been getting closer to uh, doing the interview today, I've been focusing more on who you are and aspects of both of you. And um, what I wanna do today is really have a discussion amongst the three of us that will be really far reaching. And for those of you who, know me um you and, and if you've seen my work over the years you know that i can be an emotional person i can be um loud and proud and speaking up i can also uh, in the middle of all that get quite emotional and almost you know cry cry but i don't allow myself to cry cry because i also want to keep speaking and i can't keep speaking if i'm crying crying um, but I, I hope that one of the um, one of the values of today's discussion is that you also go and learn more about um, the Burke cause. And, and let me say one other thing. So for me, as I've been delving more into your work in particular, Shane, one of the reasons it's been very emotional for me is to see. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, both of us had our disabilities since we were young, yeah. but our life experiences have been pretty significantly different because of laws that are in place today that were not in place when I was growing up. Yeah. And so maybe you could speak a little bit because your parents have played a very important role in your life. Yeah. Um, do you know when you were first entering school, whether, um, it was not an issue for you to get into a regular school um, or was it something your parents had to do in particular to make that happen? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having us today. Um, Hannah and I look up to you so much and all that you've accomplished in your lifetime with many other people in what you've done for the disability rights movement. Um, and as you just said, many of the laws that I was able to take for granted when I was born or because of you and the people that you worked with to make them happen. So I can't really convey how much I appreciate that. Um, as I get older, I'm realizing more and more how lucky I am to be born when I was. 
Um, and that's because of you. So to be and here thousands today. thousands of others. And thousands of others, exactly. But it, with all of you working so hard to make that happen, I was able to live a very successful, happy, productive life. Um, to answer your question, I remember that when I was getting ready for kindergarten, the school district where I lived in Pennsylvania uh, kind of took it as a, an obvious fact that I would be in special education um, in different classrooms than the non-special education students. And my parents were like, why? why? He, he needs help like, lifting a book, but he, he can be with other students. Like, they can help him get his books out. Um, there was some argument, some fight um, to get me integrated into regular ed classrooms. I was so young, I don't remember it that well. Um, but I can tell you that my parents were successful in their fight. And I began kindergarten uh, in regular ed. I had a, an IEP um, and I had some assistance built into my day, but otherwise I was um, in a regular school, uh, in regular classrooms. And I always took that for granted. Um, so when Hannah and I watched your documentary and read your memoir, um, it really put things into perspective that, you know, the things that I took for granted were not always the case. So, uh, again, thank you for all that you've done to make that happen. I, I think, you know, thank you very much. I think, you know, what's also important about your work, both of your work, the blogging and other work that you're doing, it is something that people see around the world. And when we think about, you know, the film Crip Camp, my book and so many other books now that are being written by disabled individuals. One thing I think about when talking about education is the role of parents. And um, in many countries today, disabled children are still not in any school. Yeah. And when they are in school, they're in segregated schools, yeah. or segregated classes. And so I think our discussions on the role of parents and in, in many ways, I'm sure your parents, like my parents, really, um, they weren't born advocates. Yeah. You know, it's something that they had to learn how to do. Um, and so I think we haven't done enough work with uh, getting the voices of parents really out there to tell their stories so that other parents can hear their stories. So maybe that's another project we can be involved with. <laughs> future yeah but, um so when did you start writing oh boy um i remember the first story i ever wrote uh that i can remember was in fifth grade and i wrote and illustrated uh, uh, a story about an elf who went on this big adventure and it, i just wrote it at home for myself on like loose leaf paper and then stapled it together and gave it to my parents. And I don't know if they were humoring me or if it was actually like funny, but it made them crack up. And I remember them laughing hysterically at the dinner table and just how good that felt to be able to write something that made people laugh. So 
that was in fifth grade. After that, I, I went through different phases where I wanted to be an architect, and then I realized I was terrible at math. Uh, I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, a film director, just kind of like, you know, a young person going through all the, the different dreams that they have. In high school and college is more when I solidified my desire to be a writer. And I never expected to be an author of like real books. Like I, I had a job at a local newspaper writing a weekly column. And I was like, this is sweet. Like I'm a writer, this is awesome. Uh, and then my blog, Laughing at My Nightmare, kind of took off in a way that I never expected it would. And that led to my first book deal uh, and everything kind of fell into place from there. So uh, it was a combination of uh, hard work, but also, you know, I was very fortunate that things turned out the way they did. So with Laughing With My Nightmare, how did that name come about? <laughs> yeah, I did that question a lot. I can't, I can't actually remember the real reasons. I, I, I knew that when I was writing my blog, I was going to be writing about difficult uh, situations, but in a funny way. And I needed a title that conveyed that. And it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek title because people, as you're well aware, often assume that my life is a tragedy or a nightmare. They, you know, they think that I'm sad because of my disability. Um, so I think the, the word nightmare was kind of poking fun at that. Because if you read any of my work, you very quickly realize my life is not a nightmare in any way. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's sort of where that came from. Um, Hannah, I want to include you in this discussion. Um, tell us a little bit about your background um, before you met Shane. Start from birth. <laughs> to what? From birth? Yeah. Start from birth, yeah. I'll go year by year. No, um, I grew up, I, I moved a lot, so I don't really even know where to say I grew up. I grew up between Minnesota and Connecticut and a couple of other places. She lived in Poland, Africa. All over the world. Yeah, a couple different, like a bunch of different countries. But, you know, um, that's a very, like, just for a second, I think that's very important because you you grew up in a way where um, difference was something that was a part of your life, right? Yeah, Absolutely. definitely. Um, and a lot of those moves happened when I was really young. So I eventually landed in Connecticut, um, and I grew up there until I was... 19 and then I went to college. I took a gap year before college. So I started college when I was 19. Um, and I traveled during that gap year. And then I met Shane. Did travel. Where? Yeah. Um, so my mom's family is all from Poland. She was born there. So my mom yeah. and I went to Poland to visit her family. Um, and then from there, we took some side trips. We took a bus trip through Croatia. That was fun. Uh, we drove through Italy. We just did some road trips from. Oh, tell me what you feel you have learned by those experiences comparing yourself to other people your age? I think the biggest thing I learned, I took my first like overseas trip when I was 15. Um, and I obviously I traveled a lot before that, but I was, you know, in school and stuff when I was younger. 
and I hadn't really traveled a lot in the past year. So I'd kind of like forgotten all of my overseas living and, you know, traveling back and forth to visit my family in Poland because it had been a couple of years. So it felt like my first big trip where I was like, you know, an adult, like I remembered what was going on and stuff. <laughs> um, and the biggest thing that I realized during that trip was how similar everybody was. Like when I was preparing for that trip, I was like, I'm going to Europe. Like this is going to be so different. I can't wait to see what everyone's like. And I was like, this is very similar to home. So I think the biggest thing I learned is that like, no matter where you go, everybody is generally the same. You know, there's obviously different cultural things, but you know, the overriding, you know, experience that I had was like, wow, like humans are really similar no matter where you go. Humans are humans. Humans are humans. Yeah. There's and I am twice as human as you. Yeah. Uh, there you go. <laughs> um, so I think I, I learned that early on through traveling. I never thought of that, Judy, that, you know, Hannah's travel experiences might have made her more inclined, if that's the right word, to just be so open about disability. Because, I mean, you've never had experience with disability. No, not like personal. Yeah. But it wasn't like a big deal to you. You were just like, oh, humans are humans. Uh (laughs) That's how you catch grace. (laughs) Have you traveled overseas? Shane? Uh, only since I met Hannah. So about two years into our relationship, we went to London and Paris, which was phenomenal. Um, I was very nervous about the accessibility over there, but I was delighted by how accessible it was. I did my, my assumptions were very low so anything would have impressed me. Sure. Um, I mean, it was obviously difficult at times and a lot of the older buildings are not accessible, but I was so happy to like get on a bus in London at a ramp. I was like, this is sweet. Yeah. Um, and then Hannah and I went to Poland uh, about two years ago um, yeah. to visit her family and Poland was beautiful. And I ate so many potatoes Poland uh, really does the potato the right way. So, um, yeah. That, That's your biggest takeaway from Poland? Yeah, not, not as important as yours. But <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I want to get into talking about a couple of other issues. Um, first of all, Shane, I want to say that you should not be ruling out becoming a sit-up com- comedian, <laughs> uh, nor should you rule out becoming a director. Um, I think that's one thing that I've learned in my life that um, we shouldn't be predicting what's going to happen because we have no way of knowing. And, uh, you know, I I, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume that Shane may be more of a sarcastic comedian than you are, Hannah, but I don't know if you're also have some of that in yourself, do you? Oh, she, she. I think a little bit. She has the sarcasm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It doesn't always come out in public. Like that's true. The, the sarcasm really gets heavy behind closed doors. <laughs> uh, but I, I think speaking to humor, humor was what brought us together initially. Mm-hmm. Hannah, well, do you want to explain how? Yeah, I mean, we met because I saw a documentary that one of my favorite actors had made about Shane on YouTube, like a little mini documentary. And right away, I thought we would get along so well. And it was because of the humor. We have the same sense of humor. And uh, I had reached out to Shane after I saw that video, you know, just saying like, you know, great, great work. It was about the the nonprofit that he ran and the book that he had written 
So I was just saying, like, I saw this video, you know, nice work. You're funny. Yeah. And so we started talking and like very quickly, we just got along yeah. so well, which I had predicted. I remember that first email from Hannah um, and her personality and her wit and her humor came through. I mean, it might have been like four paragraphs long. It was like four sentences long. No, it was longer than that. It was not four paragraphs. Oh, find it and then we can see who was right. (laughs) But her personality came through so powerfully and I was so compelled to know more about her. I was like, this girl is funny and intelligent in a way that I've never experienced before. Uh, Which is the same thing I felt when I saw the video. Yeah. We were living a thousand miles apart at the time. So it was not practical at all for us to fall in love was it pleasant no yeah, it, was, we're, it was horrible it was terrible we were like wow we're in love this sucks uh, <laughs> um but we made it work out we were long distance for two years with some visits here and there um during that time but after two years we were like we need to be closer yeah so i moved out to minneapolis <laughs> well you know my husband is from mexico and i met him in eugene oregon and we met in August and he moved in in January. <laughs> spoke not much English and I spoke not much Spanish. <laughs> he now speaks really good English and I still speak not much Spanish. <laughs> but, um, you know, you make it work if it's something mm-hmm. which is really important. I, I want to ask both of you, um, your work, you're, you're quite an open book. And um, you... There are a lot of similarities, Shane, in things that uh, you have gotten into talking about regarding sexuality as an example. But the question that I would like to ask both of you is, um, how do you feel being so open about who you are and uh, the comments that you get from people? And do you believe that this openness is is helping to bring about some change in a way that allows people to see that, you know, we as disabled individuals, as disabled and non-disabled individuals have the same goals and aspirations and sexual desires as others. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, do you want to go first or do you want me to? I mean, for the last question, we hope it does. You know, we hope it makes a difference because that's that's why we make ourselves so open, I think, you yeah, know, because exactly. we get questions all the time and we want to, yeah. you know, answer them. Did it feel uncomfortable to you, Hannah? Or has it, did it feel more uncomfortable in the beginning? Um, why do you feel this is something that um, you open yourself up to? I think the way that we started our channel played a big role in it. So we started it thinking that it would really just be for our family and friends. We were taking a trip together and we wanted to film it. We had done that the year before. We had made a video of a road trip we took Mm -hmm. and sent it to our parents. And we were like, this is what we did. It was Uh, super dorky of us. Very dorky, but we were going to do it again. And we were like, let's just make a YouTube channel so we can put it on there and send them the link. You know, it'll be easier. Uh, So that was really how we started it. And for the first six months, we didn't have a lot of people watching. I think after six months, we had like 4,000 subscribers, which we thought was you know, a bunch of people, but it still felt very intimate. Like it was just our family and friends and like some other people that had found it who were really nice. Um, so we got really comfortable in front of the camera and in, you know, the videos we were making without the pressure of having a lot of people watch. Yeah. And then when all of a sudden we had a hundred thousand subscribers a couple of weeks later, like it happened very quickly. 
um, we had had all that practice. And I think if we had started our channel with that audience, we would have been, at least I would have been yeah. really uncomfortable. And speaking specifically about sex and intimacy, for a while, like years, that was a topic that we didn't really bring up because we didn't feel comfortable sharing that part of our life. We felt that that should be private and not for the world to know. Um, we began getting so many messages from other disabled people or their non-disabled partners just asking for, you know, innocent, like, information. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I, I don't know how to get into the world of dating. Uh, I use a wheelchair. Do you have any advice? And it became apparent that there is a lot of, you know, misinformation out there about disability and sexuality. And we saw so many comments from people commenting on our channel saying things like, I can't believe she would give up, you know, intimacy to be with him. Uh -huh. I can't believe she would give up having kids to be with him. Like all of these things that people just assumed <laughs> Shane was incapable of and I had like given up in our relationship. Yeah, and like when you think about it, if there are thousands and thousands of people out there that believe that disabled people are not sexual beings, that's a problem. And that obviously contributes to the wider spread societal stigma that exists for disability. So Anna and I, after a lot of uh, conversations, we're like, all right, we're going to talk about our sex life. We're going to keep it respectful and educational. Um, but we did it. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. We get emails all the time now from disabled people and non-disabled people saying like thank you um you've helped give me the confidence and information to feel comfortable like with my own sexuality and like to go out there and find a partner so it's those emails that really make us happy that <laughs> we did it um yeah you know um in the 1970s when i was in berkeley um UCSF Medical School had a grant from the federal government. I laugh about this because I'm like, I can't imagine there being a grant like that today, but it was on sexuality and it wasn't on sexuality and disability. It was basically on sexuality in general. So it was a program that was basically helping do counseling with couples, gay, straight, disabled, non-disabled, on and on. And it was a very um, explicit program. It wasn't open to everyone. You know, it was a small group of people that came together for a number of weekends. And I was one of the people who was being trained in some of the work they were doing. And as a result of that, I was doing some lecturing at schools and other programs in the Bay Area. And I really learned very early on that if we didn't get in, it would, it would start out as a discussion around disability. Mm -hmm. But if it didn't get into having discussions around sex and sexuality, that we really hadn't gotten to the nitty gritty of what people wanted to know about. Yeah. And um, it, was, it was a little bit difficult for me really to decide at that point that I was gonna be quite explicit. So when people wanted to get information. Um, I talked about 
lovers that I had had, many of whom did not have this, that did have disabilities uh-huh. and people with spinal cord injuries and other ways of, you know, addressing one's sexuality and sex, et cetera. And, you know, some of my friends were like, how could you talk like that? <laughs> and I just felt like it was important to be able to get to that level. And so as I've been, you know, watching more and reading more about both of you, I thought this is really interesting because we're like 50 years later and having these types of discussions in a much more open way. I don't think it's thousands of people who uh, view us as asexual, non-sexual, um, or people, you know, Hannah, in your situation as a, a spouse and what you're giving up for whatever reason. But I think it's millions of people. Yeah. No, and I think that's really the issue. And so um, I, I think it's been really very positive that both of you open yourselves up to such open and honest discussions. And I also feel like we're all storytellers and we want people to tell their stories, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we say that often on our channel that we need more disability representation out there in the world. I mean, the biggest, when I was a teenager, I was filled with doubt that I would ever have a real relationship because I didn't see examples of that in the media that I was consuming. Um, So yeah, I I think that, you know, whenever a disabled person has the opportunity to share their story, if that's something that they're comfortable with, it's so needed in our our world right now. So um, we are one year into COVID. (laughs) And you were just telling us that you just recently got your COVID shots. Pull it up my sleeve, ready? I'm going to show you. There it is. <laughs> I had my second shot a couple of weeks ago, and my husband, who's a spinal cord injured guy, had his two weeks ago. Um, so congratulations. I Sorry you had to go to another state. But um, I want to move a little bit forward, Ray, COVID. And that is, you know, you speak a lot about travel. And I also have traveled a lot internationally for decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, I laughed and cried with the story that you have in your book about your first trip to uh, Florida um, and how your wheelchair was broken. And just to tell you that I always take any movable part off my wheelchair onto yeah. the plane. I never do anything else. <laughs> but as we're moving out of COVID and we can start thinking about uh, life as it will be. Do you see travel by airlines something that you're still interested in doing? Absolutely. Uh, but I know it's going to be difficult. Um, it, and people are always shocked when we tell them about the rules and regulations for disabled people on airplanes. Like they, I, I think people assume that I'm able to just stay in my wheelchair and roll onto the plane and, you know, sit in my chair. And that is so far from the reality of what we have to do. Um, I am not able to physically sit in an airline chair. So with Hannah and Hannah's mom helping, we invented sort of this car seat mechanism. It's like a baby's car seat 
or a toddler. Thankfully, I'm small. Um, but we put all kinds of pillows and straps and, you know, films to hold me comfortably. Well, not comfortably. To hold me in place. Safely. Safely. Um, and, you know, getting on an airplane is a process for us. It takes, what, a half hour maybe? Yeah. And we hold up the plane. And- yeah, it's so stressful because it, it's always different too. Like sometimes they don't let us on early and then we have a crowd of people that are like trying to get around us. So even just like the building up to getting on the plane is stressful. But that being said, like we love traveling and for, you know, business with species engagements and things like that, we've had the opportunity to travel quite a bit and we want to get back to that. Um, you know, I, I think... The more of a spectacle that we can create as we get on the airplane, showing people how difficult it is, the better. So I used to be really embarrassed getting onto an airplane. Like I didn't like holding up people and making them wait. But now I'm like, you can wait all day, take this in, absorb it, understand how unfair this is. Um, so yeah, we we hope the airline reform happens in our lifetime and we do everything that we can to let people know how wrong it is right now. Yeah, airline travel for me is also very important. You know, my life would not be what it is if I hadn't started traveling in the early 1970s. And I won't tell you about my first flight, but it was beyond hysterical. Um, And the time I got arrested on an airplane because I was flying unattended and I was reading the book called Fear of Flying. <laughs> but, um, m- you know, my concerns about flying in-, in some way also relate to one of the stories that you were telling about your wheelchair that broke when you were on your way to New York. Mm-hmm. And so I have a wheelchair now that is no longer made and it fits me. Um, and just like you talk about in your book, when you went to uh, the old wheelchair to the new wheelchair and trying to get everything to fit appropriately. Right, Anybody right. who hasn't read that, um, <laughs> you know, I just related to it so incredibly. Um, but when I think now about getting back on a plane, which I have to be able to do, I worry very much about them breaking my chair. Yeah. And like you, I have no fear or compunction about telling them what they have to do. And, and you can tell somebody on one end when they're loading your wheelchair what to do, but you don't know the people that are going to unload your wheelchair. So there is such an amazing risk. And I think, you know, you're with the viewership that you have, I think speaking about these issues are so important to allow people to understand that, you know, we can't make, it's not like a piece of luggage getting broken. It's not like, okay, I'm not going to put my luggage under the plane. I'll put it on top in the overhead bin. Yeah. Um, it really is something that in the design of airplanes, in the training of uh, airplane uh, loaders, it has to be much better. And I think another point that you make, and there is work going on uh, by national disability rights organizations on being able to travel on a plane in your wheelchair. Yeah. But I think it's really the bigger issue overall of people understanding that we are a part of society and the way we move as a country and a world is on buses, trains, planes, boats, 
and we have to be able to access safely like everyone else. So thank you very much for raising those issues. I guess another point that I wanna bring up and that is uh, the issue of personal assistance services. You speak really um, very powerfully in the book about uh, your need for uh, assistance and my needs are not as extensive as yours, but very similar. And I think this issue of um, the average person not understanding the amount of money that we have to spend on personal assistance if we choose to work. Yep. Um, do you speak with other disabled individuals a lot about the issue of the importance of personal assistance and how it's helped change your life? Yeah. Um, give me your thoughts. I mean, people people ask you a lot, like how what they should do, basically. Yeah. You know, Shane gets a lot of emails from disabled people asking, like, how, how do, do I you move have, out? Yeah. Yeah. How do I move out to my own place? Like, how did you have a job and afford it? Like, there's just a lot of, you know, it's it's a really difficult situation, and yeah. people ask a lot about it. And the fact is, like, I don't receive uh, any sort of government support because of my income and assets. Um, and that's another area that people are often shocked when they learn that you're not allowed to have more than $2,000 in your bank account. Uh, and it varies, you know, here and there, but, um, it's, a it's something that has really factored into our life as we've been begun thinking about having children. Um, because if Hannah is pregnant, it's going to be difficult for her to take care of me. Um, she's my primary caregiver right now. And so we ran the numbers on hiring caregivers without any government support. And it's just not in our budget. Uh, it's impossible. And we have, you know, good careers. Um, so, yeah, it's frustrating. And uh, we hear it all the time from other disabled people who cannot get the support that they need. I mean, I pay for everything myself also. Yeah. And spend more than $50,000 a year. Yeah. Um, on personal assistance. And, you know, I believe that I speak about this now with COVID and how, you know, people are talking about 40% of people in nursing homes dying and other restricted living arrangements. And yet we really, as a society, have not grappled with the need for federally and state supported personal assistance services yeah. where we can be hiring and training our own workers if we wish to be doing that yeah. and where workers can be getting an appropriate wage. Yeah. But I think again, you know, many of, one of the reasons why I have been so excited about learning more about both of you and having this discussion today um, is because of things that we've done and others are doing to really publicly speak about issues that people are experiencing every day and making it something which is no longer a discussion that should be hidden. But when we look at the totality of who we are, we're living, breathing human beings who wish to have relationships or not, um, who wish to work, who wish to be valued and be a part of the community. So when, are you involved, Shane, with other disability rights groups, 
Are you involved with any of the SMA groups, for example? Um, the other like main organization that I'm involved with, I'm a board member for Disability Rights Advocates, who are, I usually work with them as well. Uh, they're a great organization. They are basically the premier group of lawyers that handle all of the biggest disability rights cases in the United States. And I was asked to serve as a board member about a year ago and couldn't believe it. Like I was like, me, like me. Uh, and so I've been working with them for about a year, learning so much about how these cases um, work and how they create real change. It's something that Hannah and I have always talked about. Like we have this big platform where we can talk about topics and bring awareness to issues, but it, it's kind of separate from actually creating systemic change like you've done so much of in your lifetime. Um, so it, it feels like a, the first step maybe in you know transitioning or adding more systemic uh, change into the work that we do. Hannah, what do you want to say to your peers of non-disabled individuals as far as a world that you entered into that you never thought you would enter into? What have you learned and what do you want people to do? I think the biggest thing I've learned, I mean, when I met Shane, I had had pretty much zero disability experience. I didn't know anybody that had a physical disability or used a wheelchair. And I was under the assumption that accessibility was just like how it was, you know, I was just like, you know, everything is accessible. It's totally fine. That's all finished. Um, I just never thought about it. Like I really never thought about it. And so when I met Shane and like, even on our first date, you know, someone came up to us and began praying over Shane um, or, you know, we would go walk in his hometown and like half of the stores had steps and we just couldn't go in them. I, I very quickly realized, you know, that inaccessibility was a huge problem and that there were all these bizarre social stigmas, like people coming up to pray over him. Um, so I think one of the main reasons we have our channel is to give other people that were like me that disability experience, even if they don't know anybody in their personal lives that has a disability. So hopefully people, you know, can go from thinking that accessibility is the way it is to, you know, realizing all the things that we talk about exist. Yeah. And then doing something about it. Hopefully, you know, after they watch our channel, they keep an eye out for inaccessibility where they live. And I've definitely seen that in myself. Like when I would go on trips before we were living together, I would go, uh, I was in London studying abroad for four months. And I would like send Shane pictures of like cool ramps that I saw, you know, like everywhere you go, you just start to realize like, is this accessible or is it not? So I think keeping an eye out for inaccessibility is really important. That's how I knew she was the one. When she began sending me photos of ramps, I was like, ooh, yeah. Well, they had some <laughs> cool ones that were like built into the stairs. Like <laughs> they were all very neat. Something um, that I just want to real quick mention. I, earlier in my life, lived with this idea that I was a burden to the people in my life. I require help, as you know, with many aspects of daily living. And at times, I really, you know, internalized this idea that I am a burden to the people that help me. And it was not a healthy way of looking at my disability. And Hannah 
in the five years that we've been together has helped me move to such a more positive way of thinking about my disability. Um, and that was a hundred percent because she in no way, shape or form ever made me feel like a burden. And when I began to express those feelings, she very passionately dispelled them. Um, and so I don't, I don't know how to capture it in words, but Hannah has been phenomenal at um, showing that caregiving doesn't need to be a burden um, and that the person on the receiving end doesn't need to feel bad for needing care. So it's been a really cool thing about our relationship. I don't use the word caregiving. Um, I use the word personal assistant. Yeah. I don't use the word care because I, I feel like it's um, something which is not equal. It's someone taking care of someone. Yeah. And quite frankly, the two of you take care of each other in many ways. Uh, but, but I want to say that I very much relate to your thinking and your expression of the term burden. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I use different words or just emotions, but it, and that's when I can get like emotional. It's, you know, it's needing to ask people for um, assistance. Uh -huh. um, and where it feels atypical. Yeah. And in reality, people ask each other for things all the time. Yeah. But when it's in this box of something which is like normal, nobody really thinks much about it. Sure. But when it's like, give me the urinal in your case, help get your penis into the urinal. <laughs> my case, it help move my butt over the toilet and pull my pants down. Yeah. And you know, if I pee on the seat by mistake, please wipe it up. It's all these things that really go outside of what yeah. people normally think of. So I'm really glad that you raised that because for me and others, it's not a new issue, Yeah. Um, but it really does enable a broader discussion. And on that, unfortunately, we're coming to an end of this discussion. I'm so really honored and happy that um, we're getting to know each other better. And I'm very excited about being able to put this out as one of our first podcasts. And uh, I will continue to learn from you. And um, I look forward to helping you any way I can. Thank so you thank so much. You this has meant a lot to us and uh, we'll continue to follow you as well. As I said, we are so inspired by the work that you've accomplished. Um, and I don't, I don't use the word inspired in the terrible way. Uh, I mean that you've accomplished so much and we can, you know, hope that we are able to do that in our, our lifetime as well. So you're well, you already have, <laughs> you already are. And um, I guess, you know, now that I'm 73, one of the other issues that I think is really important is the intergenerational issue of disability. Um, and also, you know, while we today have been speaking a lot about physical disabilities, people with physical disabilities, mm -hmm. the work and the vision that we have goes way beyond just uh, addressing people who have physical disabilities. Yeah. It's really a changing of the way we think as disabled individuals about how other people view us as disabled individuals with visible or invisible disabilities. 
And ultimately, I think what we're all speaking about is changing our societies around the world to really learn about what we all are able to contribute and want to contribute. Thank you so much. Thank you, Judy. Have a great day. Talk to you again. Thanks so much for tuning in to The Human Perspective with Judy Human. This week, our guests were Shane and Hannah Burkaw. You can find links to everything Squirmy and Grubs related on our website and in the episode description. The intro music for The Human Perspective is written and produced by Lachi, and the outro music is by Galen Lee. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Human Perspective, and follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram at The Human Perspective. I realize I love this moment.